Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to the editors of a new anthology of essays exploring our relationship to our canine friends. Dog-Hearted, Essays on Our Fierce and Familiar Companions, is a heartwarming new collection, including work from Cal Flynn, Carl Phillips, and, of course, our two editors also have essays within the book. They are Rowan Hisayo Buchanan, who's here in the studio with me, and Jessica J. Lee, who's uh, joining us down the line from Berlin. Welcome to Monocle Reads, both. Thank you for having us. This book is just lovely, and I've just felt very um, comforted by it, dipping into it over the last couple of days. Although, of course, there are some devastating stories in it, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, tell me about how it came into being. You're both obviously dog owners and you were out walking. Yes, so we were both in London during that interesting time where you could only sort of go out to meet anyone outside in the freezing cold. And we both have dogs and we both have very weird dogs (laughs) that are very anxious. My dog is very afraid of other dogs but is in love with Jess's dog. And believes Jess's dog to be all-powerful, and Jess to be all-powerful, actually. So would antagonise other dogs in the park and then run and hide behind Jess's dog. But yes, they had fun. They always had fun with it. But yeah, so we we would walk them. And and I guess it just, we got to talking in that process because we would be talking about work, but most often the dogs would take up all of our attention. And then we thought, okay, well, why don't we just do this instead? Oh, that's excellent. What a a great idea. And Jess, tell me about the title of the book, because it actually comes from a, a quote, doesn't it? Yeah, so this is actually Rowan came up with it um, when we were when we were devising the idea fairly early on. It's a quote from from King Lear that Rowan really liked, and so she had had sort of suggested it because Rowan, perhaps you can speak better to this. What stood out to you about the quote is is this idea that that being dog hearted is is it's not a a positive description. It's it's pejorative, really, in Lear. And we loved this idea that it could be something so much richer, I think, when you know, and warmer, and and I guess more multi-dimensional. Mm, well, it, it certainly is very evocative. Although you you kind of read it in a positive light, don't you? Now there are so many essays in this, and I wonder, was this something that you put out to authors? Did you did you choose sort of the authors that you liked and said write something on dogs, or did it happen the other way around? So we reached out individually to the different authors in this book, and. In each case, we had some sense of what they might want to write about. So Chris Pearson is an academic and he writes about dog history. And so we were very much like, please share your knowledge with us. But, for example, Jess Pan is a very humorous writer. She's very funny and I think she possibly told Jess, the editor, two Jesses, that the story of writing this list for having the ideal husband and forgetting to write Dog Lover on it. And we thought that would be a hilarious essay. And so we sort of reached out to different people and then inevitably we also were surprised by connections we weren't expecting to see between the essays. Yeah. Well, Jess, the other Jess's essay is hilarious. I, I absolutely <laughs> love the idea of this very, very comprehensive list. And I also love the idea that it worked. <laughs> But of course, she did leave out Dog Lover, but inevitably that didn't matter, did it, at the end? No, not at all. It was really remarkable 
because over the course of the story of, of Jess Pan's essay, you know, she sort of teaches her husband to love dogs. And I, I loved this idea that we would have an essay in this dog collection about someone who actually really didn't like dogs. It felt kind of important to have that perspective because I think as, as dog owners, we all we all know those people. And those are usually the people that our dogs are most interested in. Absolutely. They want to be on their laps, don't they? Yes. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Table Scraps by Cal Flynn. And that sort of explores, I suppose, the wild animal or the wild nature within our pets. Tell us more, Owen. So Cal is writing about a dog that she adopted at the end of her life. Um, Suka's a rescue husky and she's... You know, when you have a sled dog, when they reach the point where they can't pull sleds anymore, they have to be found a new home. And so Cal had volunteered for some time working with these dogs. And so when she receives a call to say, hey, could you adopt this particular older female, Cal accepts. And it's a very unusual relationship because Cal's dog is so almost wolf-like, so dignified and fierce and sort of almost a professional. Mm. And Cal writes about them both together working towards a domestic relationship and sort of edging around each other and figuring it out. And there's this beautiful section towards the end of that essay about feeding, Cal feeding her dog blood. And that sounds grim, but it's the most tender act that she can come up with. And I think that's one of the things I loved about many of these essays is that, you know, we might have a cartoonish image of like a cute dog bouncing around and dogs can totally do that. But that some of our most intimate moments with dogs are in the mess and the difficulty. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a really beautiful essay. It's one of the reasons we it's very early in the collection. Mm, I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I get down on all fours, she writes, to prance with her. When she howls to the sky, I will howl in answer. I have lost all self-consciousness in pursuit of her approval. And I, I just love that. Tell me, do you think, Jessica, that you the nature of your relationship with your dog changed as a result of working on this collection? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really funny because um, we did an event for, for the book yesterday and, you know, just even having that moment to, to start talking about the collection and to start talking about our dogs in this way that is, I guess it's a bit more detached from the everyday, you know, when you're, when you're putting a book together, when you're putting, putting the dogs on the page somehow, you know, when you, when you put them into that kind of abstraction, you see them anew in a way that's just so different from the everydayness of, you know, getting up and feeding them and taking them for walks and, and being sort of stuck in that routine in many ways. And I, you know, I, I came home yesterday and I, I looked at my dog and I thought, oh, I want to make your life even, even better than it is now. Just having that moment of, of sort of thinking about him, you know, detached from our daily life. It really, it sort of, you know, called home for me how much I love this creature. <laughs> And yeah, so it's been really powerful, I think. And I think, you know, one of the things that Rowan and I touched on when we were putting the collection together was this idea that, you know, we didn't want to stay in this sort of sickly, sweet, cutesy dog sort of mode, right? Because it's not how we experience our dogs. And, and, and you know, Cal Flynn's essay, as you already talked about, it really points to that, the emotional complexity of our relationships with our dogs. And I think reading everyone's pieces as we were working on this and, and editing the pieces, it really just... It uncovered for me, I think, new dimensions of of how complicated our feelings towards our dogs can be. They're family members and we love them and, you know, they're comforting to us. But there's also 
you know, that feeling of like, I want to please my dog and I get jealous when he wants to be with someone else and, <laughs> and, you know, wanting to really give them this full life, but also realizing that they're, you know, autonomous creatures of their own who sometimes, you know, they don't abide by our wishes and, and that is all right. And, and really sort of negotiating my own feelings around that. I think it's, it's been quite powerful. And how about for you, Rowan? Did it change your relationship with your dog? I think that one level, you know, I went home yesterday and I said, thank you for being my muse. But I think what it is, is that I have a very weird dog. She's a Tibetan Spaniel, which is a breed that no one's heard of. But she's basically small and fluffy and thinks that she's much larger than she is. And I didn't think that I would see so many connections between her and some of the more fierce dogs within the collection. But seeing the ways in which the relationships between the authors and their dogs or humans and their dogs are constant acts of negotiation. And we were talking about this yesterday. We often think about dog intelligence as having to do with how many tricks can this dog do? How many words does this dog know? How obedient is this dog? But actually, I sort of notice this thread within the essays that we really appreciate our dogs sometimes when they're not being good, when they're being stubborn, when it is a negotiation, when it is a difficulty, because that's what makes them different than robots Mm -hmm. or, you know, a video game of a dog. And it made me appreciate, I suppose, some of her qualities that I otherwise might find a bit more frustrating. (laughs) I was playing with my dog yesterday and my partner looked at her and he said, do you think that she feels cynicism ever? I wonder if you think dogs can be cynical, Jessica. A hundred percent. I say this, I, you know, my dog is, he's a Kromforlander, which is a fairly rare German breed, and they're very intelligent. But what I had never encountered in a dog before I met him was that range of feelings that are like annoyance, cynicism, disbelief. All of these things are are, are things that my dog demonstrates to me almost on a daily basis. And it's really it's really strange because nothing in the dog training manuals or or anything you read will sort of, you know, prepare you for, for how to deal with that. And, you know, I've spoken to loads of trainers over the years and said, you know, if my dog talks back to me a lot, he'll do what he's asked, he'll behave, but he'll do it grudgingly. He'll do it with opinions. And they always say, well, that's really strange. I, I have not really heard about dogs talking back. And, and I'm just sort of, you know, I feel like processing that has been a, an interesting component of, of incorporating this dog into our family life. Yeah, absolutely. Rowan, let's talk about your story now. It's called Runt. And it's really interesting because, of course, it starts actually from your teenage years. So this, my essay ends talking about the dog I have now, but it begins with an incident that happened when I was a teenager in which my father decided that he needed to breed the family dog. And against my mother's will, he takes this dog to, and my mother referred to it as being raped, and gets her pregnant. And at the same time, there was a lot of conversation going on in the household about, my father was saying, you know, the reason we did this was not even that he wanted the puppies. He just thought that female animals go a bit strange if they don't get pregnant. And as a teenage girl hearing that, it was a bit like, excuse me? What are you saying? <laughs> and so this this dog has actually quite a difficult birth and she does end up, sorry, listeners, eating some of the puppies. And I... At one point, biting one in half. Yes. 
you know, and we think of puppies as the cutest of dogs. And I mean, actually, newborn puppies sort of look a little bit like mice or hamsters. They're very small and have little shut eyes. And I tried very hard to rescue one dog that she had not eaten but had rejected and we didn't want to push her because we didn't want her to eat this dog and I failed I wasn't able to the dog had a heart condition and it was very memorable to me in that time and it sort of became tangled in my head with the idea of what female animals are supposed to do you know my dog that my father said yes she definitely wants her babies really didn't want her babies very clearly and you know I sort of think oh is this is this something that's possible? Is it possible to save another creature? And my dog, the dog who I was earlier just gently complaining about but loved dearly, was also the runt of her litter. She wasn't a dog I bred. I found out that there was a litter. She was the smallest. And she did have some health problems, but we were able to work through them. And it, it led me to think about, like, what what does it take to survive and what does it take to care for somebody else or some other creature in order to get them through and where are the limits on that? Nell Stevens and Ellie Williams. Jess, I wonder if you could tell us about that story because they, they talk about having a dog and a baby at the same time and actually how difficult it is. Yeah, I, I, this this piece, I think we were really excited to see what Nell and Ellie came up with because when Rowan and I put this to them, they said, okay, well, we'd like to sort of explore this idea of, you know, working the, the dog into the family and, and then having a child and what that means and how that dynamic changes things. And what we hadn't expected was the sort of dynamic way in which they would, would come up with their strategy for writing the essay, because we had asked them to write the essay together. They're married and they're both writers. And we thought, you know, for a change, let's do a co-authored essay. Let's see what they come up with. And um, the essay is titled Fetch, very appropriately, because they they wrote it essentially as if they were playing fetch. One of them finishes a line and or writes half of a line and leaves it unfinished. And then the next one picks up the next section of the essay where the other left off. And I think it was just a really powerful reflection on, I guess, just that back and forth and that constant negotiation in a family of, you know, how do we relate to one another? And it changes daily. There's a scene that that really stands out to me from that from that piece. And it's, you know, the baby and the dog sort of rolling a ball back and forth. And that for me, I just think is it's a really sort of stunning image of of, I guess, the changeability of things and the ways in which these relationships, they're always going to be a little bit different. And, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of references, I think, to babies actually throughout this book, mm-hmm. because so many of us as writers, I think we're, we're just in that phase of life. I had a baby while, while we were working on the book as well. And I know Jessica Pan also, she writes about her son who she'd had uh, shortly before I asked her to, uh, we asked her to work on the, on the essay. And so it comes up as a theme, I think, for a lot of us. But I don't think anyone arrives at the same answers, right? Like we all had really different takes on it. It was really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. The pictures in the book, the illustrations are absolutely lovely. And you did them all yourself, didn't you, Rowan? I did them almost all myself. The illustrations for Esme Wage and Wang's essay were actually done by her because her essay is about her relationship with her dog and mental health. And I knew when we reached out to her that one of the things that she does to address her mental health is to draw pets, her friend's pets, her own pet. And it's a way of reaching a kind of calm. So We'll give credit to Esme, but yes, the rest of the illustrations within the book are mine. And it was really joyful to do because I reached out to all the different writers and I said, can you send me 
pictures of your dog so that I can work on these illustrations. And some of them are writing about dogs from their childhoods. And so I'd get sort of photographs of a Kodak print with the numbers on the side and a slightly fuzzy image, um, whereas others were able to send me high-resolution iPhone photos, and sort of, sort of working with them and working with multiple images and trying to pull together an illustration was a really joyful act for me and then being able to send them to the authors and say, hey, did I get this right? Are you, are you okay with this? And I'm very lucky in that none of them wrote back and said, how could you? So unflattering. <laughs> They're great. And I particularly like the, the image on the front, which is just this classic image of a, a dog curled up. You know a dog that's like that is just really, really happy. <laughs> so that image was actually pulled together with the cover designer because she looked at all my images and then she, and she was doing the design and she said, I'm going to do something or I'm, I'm told, the editor told me that she said this, so this is a very second-hand story. <laughs> she then wanted to do something that would work with the images within the book and I love it so much. It's the dream cover. Yeah, it really is. It's a lovely, lovely cover. Jessica, let's talk about your story because you also chose The Runt of a Litter with a, a very unusual condition. So my story talks about that sort of initial period when we were wanting to get a dog and we were in the research period and, you know, doing all of our due diligence. And then we were offered a puppy from a litter of Kromforlanders here in, in Germany, and he had a cleft palate, which is something that I, I've never encountered really before, um, before meeting Brisket, my dog. And I'd never really known that it was a thing, right? You don't often hear about it until you really dive into the subject. And that's largely because when dogs are born with cleft palates, up until very recently, and I'm talking the past few years, the general advice has been to euthanize them. And, and so that is, you know, you don't meet many cleft palate dogs for that reason. But over, you know, the past, you know, decade especially, there's been a really strong movement to spread knowledge, particularly amongst veterinary practitioners, and from uh, cleft palate rescue groups and, and individuals who are very skilled at it on, on how to rear these pups because they can't suckle, they can't latch, and they risk aspirating if they, you know, they can essentially inhale any any sort of liquid up into their, their nose and, and into their lungs. And so I, I had to learn a lot about this. Our puppy, Brisket, ended up being bottle fed. Um, most cleft palate pups are tube fed. And the essay essentially just traces those early months when he first came home to us and I guess asks this question of like, how does that, you know, those, those first moments where a puppy would normally be with their litter mates, normally be suckling from their mother, if they get all of their sustenance and all of their comfort and essentially their ability to live from human hands, from, you know, being swaddled up and tube fed or bottle fed, how does that change them? You know, how does it change their relationship to the world and to other dogs and to us as humans? And, you know, Brisket was really funny as a puppy because he loved to essentially lay in my arms like a baby the way that he, you know, in the position he had been fed, which is essentially how you would, how you would feed an actual baby. Mm. But yeah, I, I learned a lot in the process of, of, of raising Brisket. And I will say there are some really excellent resources out there and, and great Facebook groups for um, owners of cleft palate puppies and, and rescuers of them. And so, yeah, it's a really interesting journey. Roman, I wonder about the connection between mental health and dog ownership or dog companionship, I should probably say. Do you think that it, because certainly your, your, your story touches on that too. I mean, are they, are they therapy? So that's a very interesting question to me because, of course, 
you know, depending on what's going on in someone's mental health. They may need medication. They may need talking therapy. I never want to go on record saying, just get a puppy and it will all be fine. (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, one of the reasons we did end up getting a dog is that I knew that I wanted animal companionship in my life. And I love cats, actually. I think cats are brilliant. But I thought, if I get a cat, I'm going to sit at home with my cat saying, "Mm, the outside, let's never go there. And I thought it would be a better idea for me personally and for my own mental well-being to have an animal that wanted to go outside and that would get me outside. And she does, although I had not predicted that she would absolutely hate the rain and so would spend basically all of this month looking at me when I opened the door and crying and saying, please stop the rain, please stop it. Having to be like, I'm not God. I can't, in fact, stop the rain. So doing a very brief walk before she says, home, home, home at once. (laughs) Of course, I mean, we talked about the dark side of your story and, and there are a few dog deaths in this book. Jessica, losing a dog is, I mean, apart from losing a person that you love, just one of the most painful things in the world, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it it struck me as really important that a lot of the writers that we spoke to chose to write about dogs essentially from their childhoods or from the past. But a lot of the a lot of the writers really sort of dwelt on that that final period when you're about to lose a dog, when you're on the cusp of losing a dog. I'm thinking especially here of Nina Mingapoles's piece, The Harbor. And she she writes about her family dog Toby, who passed away last year. And I think it was it was a really beautiful piece because Toby was there throughout her growing up, right? So she gets she gets Toby when when she's when she's young, when she's a teenager, and you know for for much of her adult life she's lived away, and Toby remains, and she comes back to Toby, and she you know she's there, and she gets to see him, and then she goes away again, and and there's that sort of coming and going, and and that sort of question of being there for a dog as they're in those last stages and the ways that they're there for us. There's a scene where she is experiencing, they're they're experiencing an earthquake in New Zealand and she's with Toby sheltering. And there is that, I guess that that's the steadiness of a dog. And even in old age, you know, the things they come back to. So she goes really, uh, goes swimming really often in, in the Harbor and Toby goes with her and, you know, right on the cusp of sort of, of losing him, she she takes him for a last swim, and and Toby sort of stands uh, just before where the the water drops off into the deep, with so much so much knowledge and I guess self awareness of you know not just the place but of of I guess his own position in life. Mm. Um, and so I'm really I'm really grateful that Nina wrote this piece because when she wrote it, Toby was still with us, and then he passed away last year, and that for me is such an important thing that that she was able to capture Toby on the page, I think, just before losing him. Mm, um, mm. There's something so powerful in that. Thank you so much. Uh, Rowan, I'm going to let you get back to your dog, who you didn't bring. I was very disappointed about that. I was quite concerned that she would want to join in on the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. That's Rowan Hiseo Buchanan and Jessica J. Lee. The book is Dog Hearted. Essays on our fierce and familiar companions, and it's published by Daunt Books. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and the studio manager, Steph Chungu. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. 
Thank you for listening.